Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're kind of, we're pumped here at TPM this week. We've, uh, you know, um, if you haven't visited the site or uh, hit political TV in the last couple days, we, we, Monday afternoon, we rolled out this series based on uh, this trove of Mark Meadows texts. Uh, and probably most of you have seen a lot of this. So I'm not going to go kind of too much into all the nitty gritty uh, right at the head of the show. Um, but, you know, our, 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 our team has, has just done an amazing job because it's, it's obviously, uh, it's a coup to get access. I shouldn't say it's a coup. This is a little too on point for the subject matter. It is a, it is a really nice thing to get access as you know as journalists. It's a really nice thing to get access to documents and have some scoops and exclusives. But if you've been watching how this has unfolded uh, over the last couple days, and we're not done with this, this is going to go through the week, and it'll probably move you know even even uh, uh, beyond this week. Um, as as you've seen, we we weren't just um, you know putting together uh, a few kind of juicy quotes and stuff. Our team has really done a great job in putting this stuff in context. What was happening? What it, what was the significance of this communication at the time that it happened? Uh, what do, you know, what do the people say about it now? All the, all the, all the basic stuff of really doing something uh, right. So we are really, we're, we're, we're really pretty pumped about that. And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about um, the, I, I was going to say the defection of Kirsten Cinema. I'm not even sure this is, it, it, it's a little hard to call it a defection because she didn't become a Republican. She stopped being a Democrat, kind of, sort of, but she's still caucusing with the Democrats. And, you know, functionally speaking, that's what makes you a Democrat as opposed to something else. Uh, and she, I, I noticed that with some of the insider sheets, th they, they were sort of generous to her to come up with a different definition of what it means to caucus with a party. Because generally speaking, when you caucus with the party, that means you give them your votes on the critical leadership votes. Doesn't mean you have to vote for with, with party leadership all the time, but you vote for them to be the leaders to organize the body, and then you get uh, committee assignments, right? If you, if you think about it, there's no reason, th there's no constitutional reason why anybody in the House or Senate gets to be on any committee at all. 
what it is, is you join with, you associate with one party and there's kind of a global deal, then you get committee assignments. And depending on your seniority and juice, you get, you know, maybe better committee assignments. But anyway, she's doing that. She's caucusing with the Democratic Party in the Senate, uh, just as Angus King and Bernie Sanders caucus with the Democratic Party. So the difference here is in functional terms in the Senate, pretty damn minor, almost to the point of being cosmetic. Now, it has a much bigger implication for her re-election campaign, because this now means she doesn't have to, you know, difficult primary? What primary? She's not running in the primaries. They can do whatever they want in, in the... Uh, in the primary. But in any case, on this issue of, you know, creative definitions, I noticed that I think it was Axios was saying, well, she's not going to go to the caucus meetings. So she's not caucusing with them. Well, that's not what this means. They don't care if she comes to the meetings or not. This is just a kind of the get together once a week to kind of, you know, talk shop and everything. Uh, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a, you know, non-team spirit uh, slap, as it were, um, but and 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 Kate, when I introduce her in a moment, can tell us. But my impression is she already had a reputation of like blowing off those meetings more times than not, as it as it was. Um, and it, it's just funny that that there is um, there's this thing about her that one of the things that came up in those reports about her quote-unquote defection was, you know, one of these, I, th I think it was Axios again, they're sort of like, you know, peak Washington speak, Washington mind, um, the sort of the insider conversation. And it said, you know, even though Democrats played a role, a large part in her election in 2018, she's never considered, you know, she's always considered herself her own thing. Well, okay. I mean, contributed? Dude, Democrats made you senator. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. They didn't contribute to it. I, that, you know, the, it, it's, this, it's, this, um, it's this mentality. And the funny thing is, sometimes people have that kind of mentality. And unfortunately, they have the power to back it up. And then they're just annoying because they're annoying people. But in this case... It's always been kind of the uh, the sort of uncanny element to the cinema story, which is like, you're going to get crushed when you run for re-election because no one likes you. And so kind of like you're strutting around kind of, you know, in this, in this, you know, the world revolves around me and it kind of does revolve around you as long as, as long as there's a 50-50 Senate. Uh, but if there's not a 50, 50 Senate or when you have to run for reelection, well, then you got another, another situation on your hands. I mean, I saw a poll that came out, um, right about, I think maybe even the day she announced this, but obviously the poll was taken before that. So it wasn't taking that into account and her, her approval or her favorability among Arizona Democrats was at 5%. I, it's hard to it is almost in, impossible to capture how horrendous that is. It's not, you know, normally think about, well, you want approval or favorability around 50%. Among your own party, you need it to be like 90%. Like Mark Kelly, I looked it up, his number going into this, into this cycle 
was, you know, 91, 92% approval and favorability from Democrats. And in a polarized age, that's what you need because the other side's going to not like you. So you need all of your team lined up behind you. Uh, so we're going to talk about um, both these things. For some reason, I, I seem to have more to say about, had more to say about, about this, this uh, ridiculous person, Kirsten Cinema, than, than our amazing uh, series. But, you know, my own, my own, my own weird mental quirks are, are, are my problem. Uh, let me remind you before we uh, proceed, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're heading out to grab coffee, stop what you're doing and go for Grady's. Packing quality, flavor, and convenience into a pouch, Grady's Cold Brew Kit makes 36 servings and can be enjoyed for as long as two weeks after you brew it. Made with best-in-class ingredients, Grady's gives you the better than coffee house flavor without the long lines or the price. Perfect for home, office, or home office. Just add water and steep for fresh cold brew on demand from your fridge. Hear that? It's your refrigerators congratulating you for making such a great decision. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so uh, Kate Riga, co-host Kate Riga, what is, well, first of all, What's it like having everybody talk about your work? <laughs> it's all, weird. All it's over, so all over ca- All over cable news and getting, you know, picked up in different publications and everything. It's a nice yeah. feeling. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I did not think that our tech series would have such a splash and not because the quality of the work or anything, but I just thought <sighs> there is like a point of diminishing returns when people are so accustomed to the fact that these type of people in Trump's orbit are, you know, fundamentally like undemocratic, authoritarian people um, who wanted to overturn the election and who paid almost no price since then, you know? So I just like really wasn't sure that they would resonate, but uh, happily they did. And I think, um, you know, the one, it's almost funny because <laughs> I think the person who's probably had the hardest time from these texts being unveiled is Ralph Norman, um, a, a Republican congressman from South Carolina, not Ralph Northam, which is every single time I've typed this guy's name, I like quadruple check it because it just hits my ears wrong. But he's the one who called for martial law in the last hours of Trump's presidency, you know, famously at this point spelling it, you know, like Marshall's department store, um, which kind of has that classic, you know, layer of buffoonishness on top of the authoritarian tendencies. Yeah, malevolence and uh, uh, poor, poor diction. Yeah. Well, it's not poor diction, actually. It's poor. It's poor spelling. So, you know, malevolence and illiteracy. Yeah, exactly. A potent Um, combination. And I think his, you know, even the meta story within our story is kind of funny, you know, because it's like we go to him for comment and he's like, you know, that was years ago. Show me the text that you're talking about. And we sent it to him and he did not respond. And then a day later, he responded to a, you know, a local South Carolina news outlet where he says he, he corrects his spelling of martial law and says, uh, you know, this this came from a source of frustration. Like I was just I was worked up kind of thing. Um, and then yesterday, uh, the White House commented on our reporting um, 
on our reporting there and, you know, called it a, a disgusting affront to our principles as a country and everything like that. But I think, I think it's like two things. I think, first of all, it's the fact that so many different members of Congress were involved in these texts. And like, as we've said throughout, you know, there's a lot of reason to think that this log that we have is incomplete. You know, there are some texts that seem like they're missing context or sometimes, you know, and, and it's Meadows who handed these over, right? So a lot of times there's no response from him, which you can easily kind of imagine how in a lot of these exchanges that paints him in a positive light. You know, if someone yeah, it makes comes him to him like, whoa, that's crazy, man. I'm exactly. not even going to touch that. Yeah, exactly. But um, but what he did hand over, we've got so much. I mean, we've got dozens of these people, many of whom are still in Congress, many of whom are angling or already secured leadership positions in the Republican caucus. You know, you've got Andy Biggs, who's currently kind of putting himself up uh, for speaker to the, the never Kevins. And then you have... Um, <laughs> Perry, you know, who is the the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. So it's not just that these are kind of like irrelevant backbenchers among the hundreds of people who are in the House. I mean, they are important people within the caucus. Um, and it's just it also, I think, gives us some insight into a question that I think people have been asking a lot ever since January 6th, or really ever since the rise of Trump, which is what percentage of these people is cynical, you know, is seeing this as uh, helpful to their own reelection prospects and to the prospects of the party. So they're kind of willing to hitch their wagon to anything. And what percentage are we being governed by people who are just fully kind of Fox News addled and really, really believe these conspiracy theories? And I think, you know, and we can get into this, different conversations reveal different levels of each, but it's a really intimate portrait, I think, of these people's state of minds and priorities while they were kind of watching this presidential dream crash and burn. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I was just in the midst of writing a post where I, I haven't published it yet, it'll probably be up by the time you listen to this, where I note, and this is something I said on Chris Hayes' show last night, that, you know, you see these and you're like, wow, this is like a kind of a, a a a bunch of you know MAGA trolls on Twitter and down you know they're in their back and forth kind of just like totally crazy stuff and you're like wow these guys are these people are in Congress and that's pretty wild and so it's not it, it's you know they're not just dishing this stuff on Fox News to get their people riled up at some level uh, they believe it or at least they stay deep in character, you know, method acting, right? You got to stay in character at all, at all times. Um, at the same time, I do think, you know, there's another thread through all these, uh, through all these texts, which is basically like Donald Trump can't lose. That can't happen. And if he's losing, we've got to unlose him. Because that's just, we're not living under a Marxist dictatorship and, you know, this is the, the the forces of Christ against the forces of evil and stuff. And when you're talking about it's the forces of Christ and forces of evil, yeah, you're not going to, you're, you're, you're going to look at the ballots pretty hard because that's a high standard, right? Um, and, and I think it is important to sort of come back to that, that that's really what's going on here. They're not, losing is not acceptable to them. 
losing is not acceptable. And that is the sort of the, the kernel of the authoritarian mindset. Uh, and once you once you make that once you are are in line with that judgment, then you don't come up with whatever. Someone said there was something about Italy and satellites. Well, let's let's get to the bottom of that because that's one. You know, it doesn't. It and and you know, you you, you sort of uh, in that. Um, it's it's Ralph Norman's this the martial law guy right mm-hmm, I get, mm-hmm. getting my people a little a little confused here sometimes um that one is is you know r- revealing in the sense that that's you know kind of to most of us we're already done at that point we've even already had our insurrection like right you know you need the you need the you need election day you need the vote counting you need the you know that 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 official confirmation they do in mid September you need to have your insurrection and now it's all done and and Joe Biden's about to be sworn in and he's saying you just got to like call out the military and shut down the courts and Trump's president forever and kind of like okay i think i get where i get, i think i get where you're coming from here trump losing is just not acceptable period right. And, you know, Jacob asked us a question about this, which we're, you know, kind of addressing now, just, you know, to what degree people kind of believe them and this, you know, quote unquote evidence that just comes across as like nuts to any normal person. And I think the Andy Biggs exchange is a really good illustration of this dynamic that I think shoots through a lot of the conversations, which is at the beginning, it's Biggs and Meadows. They it's like a totally normal election night conversation. You know, they're being like, I'm, you know, this is all about Arizona. And it's like, I'm, I'm seeing good trend lines, you know, the early votes coming in good. This is going well. And then as we'll remember, Air, uh, Fox News calls Arizona the first night, stirring up just fear on the right. And then a few hours later, you have the AP, but then a few days pass before the rest of the networks catch up. And I still remember we were having kind of internal discussions about being prepared for a recall of that race call because they were just so out on an island for a while. But as the days elapse and more votes come in and it becomes clear that even if their call was premature, it was the right one. Um, and it, it's funny because their conversation goes into like, oh God, like what is your, what's our outstanding vote? You know, where, where is the rest of it coming from? Which is a totally normal election experience. And then as we get further and further from kind of that, that crossroads where Trump, you know, some big batch could come in and kind of change his fate, then it immediately kind of you know, rabbit holes down into a dominion stuff and undocumented immigrants voting in large enough numbers to sway the results. And there's no tenor change. There's no kind of reaction from Meadows of like, what the fuck are you talking about? It just, it kind of smoothly transitions from, well, I hope we get enough from like Pima County or whatever into, um, you know, maybe the aliens came down and changed the election. And he's like, all right, good thought, good thought. Let's like, let's just see where we can get on that. Yeah, it's it's the, uh, I don't know if we've read the question yet, but, you know, the, the, I, I think that the, the, the person who wrote the question said about how I have often described that these kind of false beliefs, we have a sort of a naive understanding of belief. You often belief is a form of aggression and assertion. And I think that is still in play here to a significant extent. Um, You choose to believe what you want to believe. 
to get where to get you where you need to go. Um, and I, I think this is still fundamentally um, about that. But I, I was, on the other hand, I was when I've been reading through these various texts, the one that w- the ones that we have published. And I should just I should just note here, and this is I am I'm I'm very happy and uh, proud of this. I had very little to do with putting this series together. I did some, you know, I did some final check off and, you know, in any big series, there's legal questions um, that the person in my position has to, has to kind of, you know, discuss with the editors and blah, 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 blah. But this is all the team. This is literally, this isn't like false modesty. They did this. And and what, I, what I'm pretty pumped about is, uh, you know, I can take some credit for putting this team together. And and so that's that's incredibly gratifying to see them do this amazing work. So um, having said that, so the reason I said that then was that I'm not talking about perusing the database. In this case, I'm talking about reading the articles the way that you know the way that you listeners have read the articles. Um, when you do that, th- there are a few moments where you half expect, uh, like, is someone going to say, like, it's a bummer we lost. Or, you know, or, or, or kind of like, you know, we're coming up with these, you know, independent legislature theory and, and uh, dominion voting and all this kind of stuff. You like, does someone say like, I, I wish we'd come up, I wish we had had more votes than they did. And that would have meant we won instead of lost. And we wouldn't be having to do this dominion stuff. And you, you kind of you're sort of wondering if someone's kind of kind of go there. Like, what about the part where we lost? As you say, they smoothly go uh, from a, I mean, look, people are really into politics. It's really hard to lose an election. People put everything into it. They, you know, it, it, it it feels very important. It is very important on many levels. So it's tough. And if your election night is looking looking bad, you're going to be like, all right, are there any counties where there's more votes? And even when all the votes are in, you might be saying, well, you know, how many undervotes were there? How many how many provisional ballots are out there that might still whatever? You know, that gets a little a little desperate sometimes, but like whatever, right? You know, everything's got to be looked at and 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 whatever, but there is that thing of there's no there's no voice of reason or gut check of sort of like like okay, maybe that maybe that independent legislature theory is in theoretically the case, but what about the, what about the part where we lost? Like, like, is is that cool to do that? Even though we actually lost, um, and you know, they didn't. That didn't come up. Yeah, I swear to God, in some of these conversations, especially the ones with people who are a bit more fanatical about Trump, you know, uh, like Norman in one of his talks, you know, goes on about like, are we gonna let the man who stood up for the unborn, who closed the border, are we gonna? Ab- Abandon him in his moment of need. And he even said the kind of like, and who who supported Israel more than anybody's yes. ever. <laughs> yeah. And it was this weird thing, like sort of like, like, okay, like maybe if you're in a campaign speech, you might say that. But this is like talking to Mark Meadows, and you're sort of like kind of like you said, like, like, like are, are you you're going through the campaign? Like, dude, like you're it's a text with your friend. But yeah, yeah. the kind of like, but that's building up the idea of sort of like. You know, that basic point 
it's not okay for us to lose. Yeah. And we've got to unlose here. Exactly. And it's even more crucial not to lose because this is not about the Republican Party. It's about Trump singularly. So there's no like traditionally, you know, when candidates lose hard elections, there is infighting. There is we should have gone to Pennsylvania more. There is he is too old. She is too unlikable. But with Trump, it is not about well, who can we who can we recruit next time to kind of build on the foundation? It's he is our only salvation, you know, and that is what happens when you build this cult of personality. And I that's why I just think it's so silly that now after the midterms, we keep getting all these pieces about Republicans being ready to jump ship, you know, and it's like, Jump ship to what? This isn't about a party or an ideology, both of which Trump is untethered from. It's about this like messianic cult leader that they've chosen. And that's why him losing brings up, I mean, they do anything, right? Because this is like, it's emotional in a way that even very emotional elections in the past aren't because he's not an executive. He's not a policy guy. I mean, he's a a personality and a celebrity. And that is what I think both made him and makes him such a powerful force in our politics, but also just exposes Republicans to the shellacking like they just had. Yeah, I mean, I I sometimes think that in American politics, we dispose of losing candidates a little maybe too quickly, mm-hmm. right? In, in you, you go back to uh, Adelaide Stevenson, in the middle of the 20th century, ran in two consecutive races. Although I think he probably got the second bite of the apple because people knew that Eisenhower was really popular and kind of like, whatever, going to lose. So do whatever you want, dude. Um, but basically, you lose and you're done. Like, you're like, we never want to hear from you again. Right. Um, and before. Uh, it's a slightly different thing, but before we started recording this morning, we were having a conversation about Jimmy Carter. Um, as as you know, he could have. I mean, in theory, he could have run again. He only had one term. He could have run for a second term. Obviously, as as certainly anybody of a certain age and even younger people know, for a good decade and a half after. Uh, Carter left office, not only was there not like a lot of receptivity to him running again, it was almost like we want you to go and like, we want you to go to a cabin in Idaho and never come back because we're so ashamed of you. Um, But you know, like Michael Dukakis and all, you know, these kind of people like you had your chance and you're totally done. Don't even think about running for anything ever again. And that is, um, that's not always a a great thing. I'm always struck by in, you know, because we've had a number of you know, Republicans have too, but had a number of uh, disappointments over the last few decades that it's weird when you go from, we need Michael Dukakis to be president. He's the guy. This country needs Michael Dukakis to be president. He's got the skills. He's got the experience to kind of like, then the votes don't go right. Like, dude, get the fuck out of here. You weirdo dude from Massachusetts. How the fuck did you ever get the nomination? Go away. Maybe in 20 years, we'll let you come back to the convention as a sort of an elder states. Um, And that's kind of premature. And I think part of it is that the 
presidential nomination process in this country is very entrepreneurial. You kind of just invent yourself and sometimes you get the nomination. Um, so like with Dukakis, there's no like we've all known uh, Dukakis forever and finally he's getting the shot kind of thing. No, none of us have ever known of him. He's some dude from Massachusetts. Um, Jimmy Carter, famously the same way, came out of nowhere, you know, uh, up, up in, up in, uh, down in Georgia. Um, so it's, it's much easier to sort of dispose of people politically because we didn't really know him in the first place, right? Um, and to a great extent, since we didn't know them in the first place, they were sort of pitching themselves to us as I can do it. I can win. I can do the whole thing. So if you don't win, you're like, you know what? You can't win. Bye. So it it is it is it's an especially weird thing to to go so much in the opposite direction in our politics where sort of like, you know, it, this isn't the matter of like, you know, he let down the Republican party. We let down him. You know, the country exists for Trump. Trump doesn't exist for the country. Right. It's and night it's and day. Just- it's such a constraining, it just, it so constrains what the Republican Party can do because then there's not going to be any discussion of like, how do we broaden our base? You know, how do we appeal to more people? Which is funny because it just, it wasn't that long ago, you know, it kind of in the more like Paul Ryan era where we were getting, you know, conversations from Republicans about like, we need to stop hemorrhaging young people or like, we here's our plan to win back, you know, the Latino vote kind of stuff. Like that was not that long ago. And now they've just fully kind of hitched their wagon to the idea that Trump has got like, you know, 35% of the country like in his pocket, no questions asked. So you got to find a way to kind of ding the Democrat enough and also often, you know, cheat in the system to find a way to like suppress the Democratic voting pool so that, you know, not, maybe not even majority. So that plurality is enough to kind of bring you back to success. And I think that's why we keep seeing these preponderance of thought pieces of like, well, this isn't a great strategy because it's obviously not by the numbers. It's not, uh, you know, but it also kind of, I think, just explains more the the existential crises that these grown men are having when when, you know, grown men plus like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but really it, it is mostly men are like going through when he when he loses this election and then they have to start you know, in one text, Andy Biggs is like, yeah, the circus is coming to town. And the circus is like Rudy Giuliani and his band of like creepy lawyers to try to explain why you need to overturn just enough votes that that Trump can win. And here's our legal strategy for why that makes any sense, you know? Yeah, it's it's there's again, you go to that, you know, the a thing that has been very basic, the through line from the hysterical statements to the much more concrete planning has been that these state legislatures can just decide the election didn't count and appoint their own electors. And that's just how it is. Now, it is a very shaky legal proposition that that is possible at all. In fact, that was just in essence, before the Supreme Court um, just a few days ago. Um, but even if in some sense, even if that was perhaps true, again, it was just interesting to see in these, in these, in these, um, in these texts, sort of like, you know, that hasn't happened before. 
No one's ever thought to do that. And so why exactly are we like since we lost, why why you know, why do we get to do this when no one's ever gotten to do this or even thought of doing this to be quite candid ever before? Um and you get some hand waving. Well, so many questions and and uh there just there's just so much fraud you can't unwind that and so we have to cancel it and 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 move on um it's a very authoritarian mentality and one thing that is that is worth noting here is that not all these people are in the freedom caucus but most of them are most of these type of people um and i was noting that that brian babin guy down in texas he's sort of the exception that proves the rule because he left the freedom caucus in 2017 because they weren't being loyal enough to trump so that sort of kind of gives you a sense of what of 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 what that's about but this is this group has always been a uh at least a proto authoritarian uh, you know, the F word fascism sort of, it's, it's not a matter of, 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 of being too nice. It, it's not, it, it's, it's a muddy word and it's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is this sort of Erdogan model in Turkey, the Putin model in Russia. Um, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily have paramilitary, uh, stormtroopers and stuff. Uh, but, there's one top cheese, and that guy says how everything's going to work. And that person, uh, directly and indirectly, kind of controls the media, controls the voting. Um, that's where these people are, and they've always been there. And, and it's, worth, it's worth recognizing and really demanding that others recognize that this is a dangerous group of people, and they always have been, and they have deeply un-American views, uh, because for most of us, you know, all the, all the shortcomings notwithstanding, uh, civic democracy is our, that's our jam. That's our, that's our thing. We were, you know, early adopters of the civic democracy thing, a very imperfect version, but still that's our, that's our thing. And it's not their thing. And, uh, People can have whatever views they want, and if uh, constituencies want to elect people like that to Congress, that is their right, although there actually is this thing in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, that if you uh, uh, make war on the government, if you try to overthrow the government, if you're guilty of sedition, you can be permanently barred from serving in elected office. But we need to be just more frank and direct about who these people are and the danger they represent. Right. Because, and fundamentally, as you've mentioned, they're just, they're not in a silo. I mean, this isn't just a 4chan messaging board. The Supreme Court heard the argument for the alternate elector scheme, you know, last week. And it, uh, we discussed it, you know, in depth on, on last week's pod, but it's not a beyond the pale possibility that some form of that theory is co-signed by our highest body of the judiciary, you know, and it's like we've seen from previous text reporting that Fox News is all in on it. And then you see January 6th, like you see the power that these lies can have over people. So I think sometimes there's this 
reaction of like, stop talking about Trump. Stop talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's just you're amplifying their message and, and everything like that. And I, I honestly do understand where that comes from. But ignoring it is not going to make it go away. And I think you can argue that we as journalists do a more important service when we show how even what looks like kind of kooky and ridiculous on its surface can just be very, very motivating to people who already kind of have their lot thrown in with this kind of ideology. So, yeah, you know, this this is something that um, I continue to be very proud of, but also um, I think is 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 kind of key backstory to this, that, that we at TPM spent almost a decade really following these people um, before Trump, before, you know, because Trump was you know, was the Freedom Caucus basically running for running for president. And when we were doing that, you always had a lot of people saying, you know, th- th- come on, this is just a couple weirdos up there who, yeah, they make great copy and, and they say dumb things, but focus on real politics, you know, which is what John Boehner's doing and what, and what Nancy Pelosi's doing and stuff like this. And um, our, our take was always that this actually is the real politics. And that is the sort of the motive force running under everything. They're the one and and what you saw in the kind of Obama second term, even some of his first term, was that the Republican leadership basically led at the sufferance of the Freedom Caucus. They were the one calling the shots. And it was sort of a convenient a convenient, um, convenient arrange- arrangement for everybody because the Freedom Caucus got to run run the show, um, but they didn't have to have a lot of uh, scrutiny because hey, John John Boehner's the the leader, um, and so th- that was th- these people are the real force, and they still are in the Republican Party. That's where the power is, and so you should be focusing on where the power is and that is uh you know that is where it is and and on on you know on this issue of amplification um i really i i i i think this whole model is so far off and what that comes down to is you know when trump talks he's got a whole or when it, all these different republicans talk they have a whole infrastructure to talk to the people they are talking to who they are trying to motivate, who they are trying to communicate with, who they are trying to activate. When people who are critical of Trump critique his points, deconstruct his points, that's that's not that's not helping Trump. It 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 it's you know, it may not hurt him a lot. It's not helping him. There's not this 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 whole amplification thing is 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 just wrong now there there are there are better there are um there are good and less good ways of 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 covering that but it is very easy to slip into this kind of liberal myopia mindset which when you really boil it down is kind of like what we don't look at just kind of ceases to exist we deprive it of oxygen. I'm like, no, you're putting your head in the sand. You're ignoring what's actually happening. It's not depriving anybody of oxygen. It's just, it, you know, you get the idea. But 
kind of my my two cents on that. Yeah. So let's talk about cinema a bit before we wrap. Um, like you said in your intro, Josh, she has declared herself an independent. The materials that she kind of released around the announcement were just, oh my gosh, like gut churningly, you know, this like treacly this is what the american people want they don't like parties and me i'm a maverick like all that kind of garbage and like you say it seems unlikely this is going to have any kind of significant effect on the day-to-day functionings of the senate because she is continuing to operate as a democratic senator in all but name what it really does is makes life difficult for democrats come 2024 when her seat is up because now they've got I just they've got no good options right because the way that I think this has kind of been framed is like well they either put up a democrat and risk having the democrat and cinema split the kind of non-maga vote and then give the republican a glide path or they suck it up and they don't run someone else and they get behind cinema which has always felt su- like such a weird presentation to me because why does anyone think cinema can win even, you know, with the kind of quote unquote might of the Democratic Party behind her? I mean, she's ridiculously unpopular due to the simple fact that everything she's done in the Senate is incoherent and egotistical and self-serving and that her biggest stands have been on behalf of like the pharmaceutical industry and large companies who don't want to have to pay a minimum corporate tax. You know, she's like really loves to paint herself as this, you know, the the, the John McCainy kind of like hero of the, the ordinary American without seeming to realize that the biggest headlines she's gotten are when she, you know, she nixed the corporate tax and when she was like the one person who said, no, the government shouldn't be allowed to negotiate down prescription drug prices. So really what she's doing is making it more likely that Democrats lose the seat in 2024, because whichever of those paths they choose, you know, you've got to hope that if, you know, if they do put up a, a real Democrat, a Ruben Gallego or whoever, that... There's also one other congressman who I think is... In like the mix. The, yeah, it's a, the congressman from Phoenix. I, I I can't remember. I can't remember his name, but there's at least another now. That okay. it's, that it's, that it's yeah. a little more open, not just Gallego. But like whoever it is, they're then taking the bet that maybe cinema will actually leech votes from the old fashioned kind of Republicans, you know, based on what candidate Republicans run. And I mean, that is the way that kind of Republicans could shoot themselves in the foot and salvage Democrats chances, which after this cycle is not, you know, a foregone conclusion. Like they could nominate another Blake Masters type psychopath who changes the dynamic a bit. I think the real concern for Democrats at this point is if Republicans put up someone normal and then you've got cinema acting as spoiler for the Democrat. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it, it's a complicated thing because, uh, Democrats, you know, on paper, you can say, okay, Democrats have uh, won, you know, three straight Senate elections in Arizona. You know, you can't sneeze at that. You can't say it's a Republican lock if 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 they've if they've won successive elections like that. Um, obviously, each of those elections was in somewhat unique circumstances. One was in the twenty eighteen you know, wave, uh, although it wasn't much of a wave in the, in, in the Senate. Um, w- one was there. Then you had 
COVID election. Then you had whatever happened in, in, in 2022. So it's always going to be any, any Democratic win in, in Arizona is going to be a couple percentage point play. Um, and uh, although I guess, you know, I guess the other, uh, well, it's libertarian, different thing. Um, it's going to be very close. So if if you have a, a, a second Democrat or at least someone taking from the Democratic pile of votes, and if they're only picking up 5%, that can be more than enough to give it to the Republican, more than enough. So um, uh, it doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to do great. She can, she can do terribly and still uh, be an effective spoiler. What I am not convinced of, frankly, is... Does she really want to run for re-election and get like 6% of the vote? That's so humiliating. It's hard for me to imagine that that actually happens. And she is so unpopular among Democrats that it sounds like I'm kind of trash talking to say she gets 6%. But again, she is very unpopular among Democrats. If this scenario happens, she will be... She won't be the Democrat. She'll get a lot of antipathy from Democrats as a spoiler. So I think that's I think that's entirely possible. And I and I just I, I just don't see why she would uh, do that. So I think that there's you know she's trying to basically play a game of chicken with them. You've got to you've got to line up behind me. And but to your point, Kate, what you were saying just a moment ago, I don't think it would matter if the party leadership did line up behind her. And I think it might be kind of tempting for them, as upsetting as that might be here, just because, you know, she's the incumbent senator. You don't want to lose any. You can't afford it's it's such a hard it's such a hard map in 2024. You can't can't afford to lose anyone. But even if they did want to do that, the votes are just not going to be there. Democrats really, really despise her now in Arizona. Now, I'm not saying every last one, but I mean, if half of Democrats despise her, which I don't think there's any question of, you're you're toast. There's no way you're going to win. Um, so I, uh, I, I don't know. I, the fact that I think she will drop down to like single digits, I think she may not run. And someone else mentioned something to me. Uh, I may, I didn't, I didn't, uh, verify this directly. So put an asterisk over what I'm about to say. Um, but what I heard, and this is the case in many states, you know, you for if you're running as one of the two major party candidates, you need, uh, you know, maybe seven or 8,000 signatures to get on the ballot. If you're running it as an independent candidate, you need like 40,000 signatures to get on the ballot. That's, that's a real that's a challenge. That's a lot of signatures. Um, and if you're already not unpopular, it's a real challenge. Now, I'm not saying she she absolutely could not get 40,000 signatures, but that ends up being a major expense and a major thing. Um, there's also the fact that where's she going to get the money from? I guarantee you, Act Blue is not going to get it done for her. Um, and suddenly all her Republican friends are going to be a little less excited because she's running against a Republican. Now, you probably get some dark money groups, you know, kind of uh, coming in to uh, help her out a bit. But those those groups tend to be very mercenary, very transactional. 
they're not trying to make a point of principle for someone who's getting like 5%. So I, one of the continuing oddities of this whole Kirsten Cinema drama is that she has for a long time not seemed to have a sense of how bad a, bad a position that she is in how few cards she has to play. Now, you know, maybe she knows something we don't. Maybe. I, I really doubt it, to be honest with you. Um, but we'll see. I, I, I would say this. I'm highly confident she will not be a senator in 2025. Quite possible she'll be replaced by a Republican. But it is, to me at least, very, very hard to find a scenario where she wins re-election. The irony is, the irony is, let's say the leadership really does try to like just jam this down Arizona's collective throat, right? You have to take her. Um, I don't think they're going to do that. Don't interpret this as like, oh, Josh has heard they want to do that. I don't think they, I don't think that's, but I'm saying if they did, you would almost certainly get a Green Party type candidate, who would who would who would siphon off uh, votes? And the irony, of course, is that Cinema was a Green Party candidate. That's her. That's her origin story. Um, so I just don't think it can happen. And she can make a lot of ads about independent Yada Maverick and stuff, but um, Democrats don't like her. They're really pissed at her, and I just don't think she has any way she's going to win. And because of that. I think at the end of the day, she will not run. The Green Party giveth, the Green Party taketh away. Exactly. And, you know, the other piece of this is like for any listeners who are feeling like, well, it's two years away. You know, maybe she can kind of rehab her image in that time. I just think the political realities of Congress are not going to allow for that because Correct. our time of productive legislating in Joe Biden's first term is over. I mean, the, the rest of the two years is going to be judicial nominations and really scary fights over the bills that have to get past the funding stuff. And, you know, that's where the debt ceiling comes in and all of that. And, you know, even if they manage to pass a few more stuff in the lame duck, which is not, you know, completely off the table, isn't it's not going to be something like abortion protections, you know, something that would really kind of rattle the foundations she has set in stone what her legacy is going to be by supporting the filibuster and stymieing all the legislation that could have come through. And she seems to think that her leadership on like the modest gun reform bill or, you know, the same sex marriage bill will be enough to erase from Democrats brains all that she has blocked and oftentimes blocked with Panesh, you know, like when she voted down the minimum wage thing with a curtsy. So she can kind of toe the, well, her former party line all she wants the next two years and rubber stamp every judge that comes across the Senate. And absolutely nobody is going to pay attention or know about it because that's a kind of a normal behavior for Democratic senators. You know, that doesn't make you a special gold star senator to be Biden's ally in filling the judiciary. So I just don't think she's going to have any opportunity to kind of like recalibrate what she's already done. I mean, even if, say, you know, next term she says, you know what, I've thought about it. I am now against the filibuster. 
is so what? I mean, nothing's yeah, going to pass so from the house. Yeah. So you kind yeah. of miss the, the opportunity. Exactly. And, and, and I think that um, the other part of that is that by, you know, ceasing to be a Democrat. And I think when she did that, she actually made an announcement like, you know, the Democratic Party of Arizona is just as extreme as the Republicans, more political extremism. That's not, that's not recalibrating. You know, and so that kind of lays down a marker of what I mean, she has left the Democratic Party. So basically now she has to lean into I'm not a Democrat, I'm in the middle, I'm apart from both extremes. So she's really walled off for herself the opportunity to recover any ground on that front. And the irony there is, is and I think we may have discussed this in an earlier pod. Had the Democrats held the House, there actually was a path for her. And the path would be this. You pass the Roe law in the House, um, even though, uh, you know, we needed to get 52 senators, but that's premised on Manchin and Cinema staying loyal to the filibuster. So they pass it in the House. And now Cinema says, you know what, for this, we have to set aside the filibuster and we are going to make Roe the law of the land, blah, 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 blah. I think if she did that for all the crap in the previous two years, if she did that, that is such an important thing for so many Democrats, for so many women, for so many people. And if she played it the right way, you know, this is so important to me. It's so core. Filibuster can't stand in the way. Tons of people would be like, wow, she sucked, but man, she came through. She made the right decision. And if she just kind of, you know, not, not to trivialize it, but, you know, went on a little kind of Planned Parenthood tour around the country, right? Kind of talking that up. That's the kind of thing that I think could solve her problem going into 2024. Because um, a lot of the things we're talking about, about, you know, this bill and that bill and whatever got cut out of, you know, cut from the first BBB to the second BBB. And the fact that everybody was so upset about the filibuster, most people don't follow all those ins and outs. But a lot of people are paying attention that in what half the country now, you can't get illegal abortion. And it's not technically 100% illegal, maybe half, but you know, you get the idea, all that kind of stuff. But once they lost the house, that path closed. So the one thing that now whether she would have done that is a whole other question, but right. she could have done that and she didn't. And now there's just there's there, as you say, there, there's no building blocks for her to um for her to make up ground. And I think it's, again, it's the kind of thing, it would have to be something so huge. Because you can't say like, oh, um, this, this regulatory thing that you've never heard of, I'm going to support it now. Like what? No, I mean, I'm not, those things can be very important. But it's not, it's nothing that any kind of mass political audience has any idea what you're talking about. So. And ironically, that would be moment on abortion 
you know, that would have been her John McCain moment, right? That would have been his thumbs down to repealing Obamacare, which endeared him to, you know, so many Democrats who had spent most of their lives in opposition to him. Now, of course, that was also kind of helped by the fact that his party was going completely off the rails at the time. But still, you know, that that would have been her her maverick moment, but no longer. Yeah, it's just it's it's it is just uh, closed. There's no. Yeah. There's no question about it. All right. So we took uh, Jacob's question earlier about uh, what these people actually believe um, in our tech story. So let's let's finish up with this one from Carl, who says, with 51 seats, can the Democrats in the Senate launch an investigation of Mark Meadows' texts surrounding the January 6th attack on Congress? And should they? Well, I would say there's OK. So there's two things. The the House January 6th committee has had those texts for months, maybe even as long as a year. I lose track at this point. They have a report coming out, uh, I think in about 10 days. They're going to make criminal referrals, they're going to do blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a good argument that those texts, the public may not have known about them. You do now, thanks to the good people at TPM, but the investigators have known about them. So I don't know what more there necessarily is to do on those texts from Mark Meadows. Having said that, there has been some talk, uh, and to your 51 question, yeah, they can do whatever they want. They have 51 votes, so they can do subpoenas and they run things there now. So yes, they can. There's been some talk of the House people should just, you know, kind of put the whole thing on a zip drive and hand it off to the folks in the Senate and they'll, you know, they'll continue carrying the ball. Um, I don't, it's impossible for me to know from the outside, is there more, you know, is there more to investigate? Um, you know, there's always new things you can find out, but that doesn't mean there's, there's a need for more congressional investigations. Um, so I don't know, but I do, but I do think they should use the opportunity of controlling the Senate to, keep it going if there's more that needs to be done. And probably the House people would be the ones um, most in a position to, to, to speak to that. I would say too, though, in the broader, in the broader discussion of the preservation of civic democracy in this country, uh, right-wing paramilitary organizations, white supremacist organizations, there's more to be done than just what happened on January 6th and the lead up to that. And, uh, you know, you just smart people have to make a judgment about where to, you know, where to put the most energy. But there's a lot to get to the bottom of. And I certainly hope on the Senate side that they will. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where I am too. And it's hard to also kind of answer this definitively until we see the report because. Yeah. It's just hard to know how aggressive it's going to be. The especially because the January sixth committee has, you know, I don't want to say out of sight, out of mind, but been out of kind of the public sphere for a while now. They had their big blockbuster hearings largely over the summer, and now we assume they're just kind of back to the work of investigating and, and pulling together this report. Um, so I guess I can see a world where if this report comes out and is somehow weaker than we'd expect from what we saw publicly that the Senate would want to kind of do more work there. But what we've seen is kind of a an uncompromising, aggressive 
willing to name names and point fingers kind of operation. So I don't really think that's what's in store. But I totally, totally agree with you that the groundswell of, you know, a particularly radicalized young men um, being swayed by these forces of authoritarianism and misogyny and anti-Semitism and racism, especially to perpetuate acts of violence, is directly connected to the January 6th committee, but a, a much larger contagion that we have not really fully kind of reckoned with or tracked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. having a nexus for that kind of stuff in a Senate committee could be, you know, fertile ground and helpful to kind of contextualizing these these lone wolf attacks into a bigger picture. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think, a, you know, a, a separate point that is really worth keeping in mind that I don't know exactly how long the, this committee has, has operated. I think it's upwards of 18 months, maybe not quite 18 months, but upwards of 18 months, something like that. It got started maybe late spring of 2021. Um, that's that is enough time to do a lot of stuff. Now I don't know. Often the the different uh, targets of the investigation were going through various legal angles to kind of wait them out, and sometimes you know you haven't gotten the big stuff. But I but as a general matter, I think we should um, having accountability, having justice is really not measured in the length of time that an investigation goes on. Sometimes that doesn't mean you're going to get what you want because accountability is not just through investigation. But in any case, my point is the Jan 6 investigation does not necessarily need to go on for five years, right? We'll see what they got done. Um, and, and yeah, I, th I, think that's, I think that's it. And I think we both agree that there's plenty to investigate and the Senate Democrats should have a an ambitious plan for investi in, uh, investigations in this general area, but they should look at what the House did. And if they basically kind of, you know, ran it to ground, there's no need just to kind of keep this thing going to for no particular reason. Right. That's it's not Benghazi or something crazy well, like that. Well, and that's and that's kind of the thing is that obviously Benghazi was inherently different since the whole thing was sort of absurd. Um, but it, it's worth keeping in mind at a certain point you're just, you know, it doesn't take six years to investigate something. They got a lot of money, they got a lot of investigators. This isn't like, you know, uh uh, you know, Lynn Cheney needed to kind of read through all the documents herself. So I I I, I tend to think they've probably done a pretty good job of running this to ground, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what comes out when when uh, they release the report. And I think it's. I believe they're. What is it? Tentatively scheduled. It's supposed to be the twenty first. So yeah. that's only like Merry a week Christmas away. To all. Yeah, exactly. Well, Merry Christmas more for some than for others. Um, but yeah, okay. I guess that's all the all the quality content we are going to produce for this episode. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off using the promo code TPM uh, when you make a purchase, any and all purchases, not just one time going forward, Grady'sColdBrew.com. And let me say one thing before we sign off. Thank you so much for supporting this organization. 
You don't have to be a member to listen to the podcast, so not all of you are members, but I think probably uh, the majority of you are. And uh, I, I corresponded with a number of you by email over the last couple of days. And every time I wanted to say, thank you. It is the subscription fees that makes the whole organization possible. Um, it's almost 90% of our revenue comes from your subscriptions. So that is huge, that there's no TPM without that. So I hope when you see these articles coming out, if you're a member, you can say kind of like, I made that possible because you really did. So we truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, if you're listening and you're not a member, you, you too could have all these positive feelings if you want to, if you want to sign up. But seriously, thank you to our members. Couldn't, this wouldn't be possible uh, without you. And I want you to know that we, we really, really appreciate it. Totally. Thanks so much. All right. We'll talk to you next week. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.